Mr. Roach, thanks for um, sitting out with us today with OPR, Oxford Political Review, and we're really delighted to have you here. Um, and so the world is, you know, changing in, in breakneck speed um, in recent years, and great power conflict is really back in a very visceral, and some would say kind of a dangerous way. Um, and so on that note, my first question is, um, let's start with what some people in the West found um, a little bit ominous, which is what uh, President Xi said to President Putin um, when he visited uh, Russia uh, earlier, and he said, change is coming that hasn't happened in 100 years. Um, and we're driving this change together. So my question is, what do you make of that? And you know, what kind of change is he talking about here? Well, he's always um, predisposed to these grand statements about uncertainty and um, challenges, if not, uh, tre as I think he put it in a party address last fall, uh, treacherous seas in the world, uh, and then he'll throw in, you know, the unprecedented aspect to it. I think, you know, a couple things going on. Uh, one, um, he recognizes that um, China, which is drawn so heavily on globalization, expansion of global trade, uh, global growth in general, probably the, the, the most significant beneficiary of all those trends has been China, that those um, mega trends can no longer be counted on to continue. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second thing, which is probably more pertinent to your question, is uh, his belief that um, uh, China uh, and its now partner without limits, Russia, uh, will stand together uh, in facing those challenges. Uh, and that is clearly viewed as an ominous sign in the West, especially in the United States, uh, because of uh, the unconscionable war that China's new unlimited partner uh, unleashed uh, in um, uh, Ukraine um, now, um, you know, a little over a year ago. And so uh, the, the, the view in the West is if uh, China stands together with Russia, then the changes not seen in a generation or the unprecedented challenges in 100 years, as Xi Jinping alludes to, um, you know, cut both ways. They, they could be usually destabilizing to the world and uh, lead to uh, uh, an ominous outcome for China as well. Um, and so President Macron uh, just visited China uh, a couple of days ago and then signed a, a, a range of deals there, including you know, selling more Airbuses um, and even urging China to play a more active role in uh, mediating the conflict in Ukraine. Um, and China, obviously, they rolled out a red carpet, um, and Macron seemed to have reciprocated that by telling, you know, in an interview with Politico, 
that he agrees with a more multipolar world um, that Europe shouldn't that Europe should stay out of the Taiwan issue. Um, so, do you think that this visit is a diplomatic win for Xi, um, and do you think that Europe should adopt a more neutral or autonomous position on on China heading forward? Well, it's an interesting development to say the least. Um, France, going back to the Gaulle, has a long history of doing its own thing, yeah. uh, much to the consternation of uh, the, the West, and uh, Macron is clearly indicated um, uh, the, you know, at least his independence, uh, what, what do you call it, strategic autonomy uh, relative to uh, the West. Um, I think that Xi Jinping is probably delighted over uh, the, uh, the, the view that Macron expressed. Um, because the, the one one of the things he's most fearful of is a very tight, uh, ironclad uniformity of views in the transatlantic uh, alliance uh, when it comes to addressing uh, the concerns of China. Uh, Europe, I mean, there there are two separate issues here. There's Europe's view of the, of, of the war in Ukraine, which Macron uh, clearly stands very closely with uh, the U.S. on. But the, the point on Taiwan was particularly important uh, because that's where the U.S. has really been tightening the screws on China uh, in, in recent months, if not weeks. Uh, and by stating that, um, you know, this is not uh, France's crisis or Europe's crisis, um, you know, that, that's uh, been viewed, you know, in a worrisome way with, uh, by, by many in the U.S., especially in, in the U.S. Congress. Mm-hmm. Um. One of the things that if you say you turn on, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC or, you know, MB, you, you turn on Fox News, <laughs> but people do. Um, I've heard. Okay. <laughs> um, but if you go on these channels, I mean, they have very different opinions, but one thing they agree on and that reflects a little bit of the bipartisanship in, uh, in uh, Washington on this issue is that there is a fear of China's growing influence. Um, and particularly if you look at China's growing investments, um, especially with infrastructure in different parts of the world, uh, whether it's in Africa or Latin America, do you see that China's increasingly and effectively translating some kind of economic clout to concrete diplomatic power and influence, um, such as what we've seen with uh, the brokering of that uh, reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Iran? And in effect, sort of supplanting um, the traditional role that America plays. Supplanting is too strong, but China clearly has a, a global agenda, uh, and it's an increasing, an increasingly important focus of um, uh, China's aspirations to reshape global governance. 
I was in China about two weeks ago, uh, and uh, in a China Development Forum, which took place in uh, late March, right after the the two sessions, and China's global initiatives, uh, which it had largely pre-announced, but were emphasized as a package. Uh, more so than I'd ever seen. You know, global security initiative, um, global development initiative. Uh, believe it or not, a global civilization initiative. Uh, and this, of course, follows um, uh, you know the ten years ago setting up the Belt and Road Initiative. So the the projection of power and influence in reshaping uh, many of the global institutions and the governance that underpins them is really a, a very high priority for Xi Jinping. Hmm. Um, but as I said, it's, it's far too early to conclude that this supplants uh, the Western uh, approach, but it, it certainly puts leaders in the West on notice that, you know, there is an alternative that mm. many countries find uh, increasingly interesting, if not attractive. Uh, you mentioned you were in Beijing um, not too long ago, um, and obviously you've interacted with uh, many business leaders and, and policymakers uh, there over the years. This trip to Beijing compared to previous trips, or say pre-COVID, um, how different is the China you see now, you know, post-COVID? What's your biggest takeaway from that trip? Well, um, yeah, this is my first, that was, that was my first trip yeah. in nearly three and a half years. And I'm somebody who has spent a lot of time in China over, over the years. In fact, the China Development Forum mm -hmm. that I noted earlier that was the sort of anchor, but by no means the only thing I did on this trip is something that I have participated in every single year since 2001. I missed the first meeting in 2000, but I've been to everyone since then. Uh, this one felt different. Um, the, um, the, the environment um, was clearly uh, tighter, more cautious. Uh, the security presence was uh, uh, certainly larger uh, and, and more visible than I had seen uh, before. Uh, and um, <clears throat> the composition of the China Development Forum itself was different. Uh, usually there's a large um, group of American business CEOs that are present uh, and that group, you know, I could count them on uh, the fingers on one hand and have a few fingers left over. Very small representation of U.S. CEOs. The most notable exception, of course, was Tim Cook, um, uh, who was pleased to be there uh, and announced it, um, sort of the final meeting of the CDF, the China Development Forum, that uh, Apple was looking forward to celebrating its 30th anniversary of operating in China this coming summer. Mm 
but you know, I, I, I think the, you know, a couple things that, that I noted from the Chinese that I haven't noted before, and that is number one, <coughs> they were, um, um, I, I think, um, almost stressing too hard to get across this view that China is back. Mm -hmm. This is a view first articulated by the former um, uh, executive premier Liu He in Davos, but one that was repeated throughout countlessly by many of the ministers, who, including the new premier, who spoke at the China Development Forum. And the scripting of their message was remarkably tight, tighter than I'd seen before. Mm. You, you know, basically utilizing um, you know, verbatim the same uh, description. Uh, various individuals, usually, you know, they're on point with the same message, but, you know, they, they vary in terms of the, the way in which it's articulated. Not so this time. Mm. Uh, secondly, um, You know, I got the distinct view that uh, that China had pretty much come to the con the leadership mm -hmm. had come to the conclusion uh, that the conflict with the U.S. is here to stay. I picked up a distinct sense of resignation uh, over the prospects for resolving uh, the, the the conflict, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I saw. Uh, that sort of expressed subtly at times, but um, uh, generally reflected in the view that uh, you know they they have another agenda. They're getting on to other things. Mm -hmm. The global governance, the reshaping of global institutions, is only part of it. You know, focusing on you know a lot of their own uh, issues. Uh, economic recovery, uh, deleveraging, uh, you know, addressing the, uh, the repercussions of post-zero COVID and the like. Uh, they have a full plate, and while they're um, not necessarily um, uh, backing away mm -hmm. in any way whatsoever from the conflict, they realize they have other important things to do. Um, Simon, do you have yeah, I, I was just going to ask about um, uh, Biden's um, policies to substantially grow the semiconductor industry in the U.S. And I wondered how that changes the the dynamic in the relationship between the U.S. and China, not least because presumably part of their interest in Taiwan is its dominance of the, the semiconductor market. Well, um, you know, Biden... Um, of course, did um, uh, push through and sign into law the, the, the Chips and Sciences Act of 2022, which is aimed at doing what you just said, uh, providing at least $52 billion of direct assistance to domestic semiconductors uh, in the U.S. Um, and, you know, whether or not that is enough remains to be seen. What worries me about 
the bill is if you break it down, about 80% of that, those funds go to bricks and mortar construction of new fabs and only 20% goes to uh, R&D. And, you know, this is a highly uh, R&D intensive uh, segment. So that, that that's worrisome. Um, but I think, you know, relative to your question about China, what is uh, far more worrisome to the Chinese um, are the, um, uh, the sanctions that were unilaterally imposed by the Biden administration on Chinese access to advanced semiconductors, uh, sanctions that were imposed in early uh, October of last year that have been reinforced by uh, additional pressure that, that um, the U.S. has put on France and the Netherlands to go along with these um, sanctions by restricting uh, or if not curtailing Chinese access to semiconductor uh, producing, uh, the most sophisticated semiconductor producing equipment. And so without the advanced chips that China needs to drive uh, its most important pieces of indigenous innovation, AI and quantum computing, uh, you know, America's efforts at stifling China in that regard are, are a huge threat to uh, the growth aspirations that Xi Jinping has expressed that in many respects legitimize the political promise he's made to the Chinese people. And what's surprising thus far to me is that, um, you know, unlike the, the trade tariffs that Trump put on China where there was an immediate tit-for-tat response, there hasn't really been much of a response by the Chinese to these export sanctions on advanced semiconductors. There's, there's some effort that was just evident last week, maybe two weeks ago, uh, to focus on micron technologies, but that's, that's a relatively small uh, uh, aspect of uh, sort of the, the, the U.S. semiconductor business. So, um, you know, there's, in answer to your question, there's, there's two trends. Uh, America's efforts to stimulate semiconductors and uh, most importantly, its efforts to stifle or curtail the access that China has, which is so vital. Um, I mean, on this point about semiconductors and just any high-tech um, or, or advanced technologies, let's put it that way, um, what do you think is the right approach to evaluating um, these investments or these economic ties or scientific ties with China or with any non-democratic regime, um, for that matter of fact, um, from the U.S. or the West's perspective? Do you think there should be more screening, more Well, far be it for me to you know, come up with the right way. But I think what the U.S. has and, and other Western nations have recognized is that you know, China's likely to be the largest market in the world for these technologies. And we, we have companies, as do other 
economies in the West uh, who need the Chinese market, who want to access the Chinese market to, to boost their uh, bottom line. And we've let that, um, you know, that opportunity uh, uh, dominate. Mm -hmm. What the U.S. is saying right now, and this was articulated um, very clearly by the National Security Director of the U.S., Jake Sullivan, in a speech he gave last September, that the problem as we see it right now is the so-called dual use mm -hmm. of technology that goes both to civilian commercial and defense military purposes. We have allowed China to finesse this distinction and just kept the spigot open. And what we're saying now is that we don't trust uh, this dual use. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're going to curtail uh, the availability of these products because of that. Um, you know, I, I worry that that is uh, probably too simplistic. Uh, number one, it's based on the presumption that an unquantifiable aspect of the dual use will in fact be used uh, in an adversarial way uh, toward the United States. Mm. And this, this goes back to the, you know, the, the, the Huawei, the, the case that was made against Huawei uh, uh, for the last several years, but especially since 1918, uh, 2018, mm. where the Trump administration argued, as did others, that um, Huawei needs to be stopped uh, before they install 5G infrastructure around the world because they can build backdoors into these uh, routers that can be then used um, to unleash all sorts of nefarious uh, activities on the U.S. It's a theory, but there's no evidence that Huawei has done that or is going to do that. But we presume that that is uh, the case. Uh, the same thing, by the way, with, you know, more recently, TikTok. You know, we've got, you know, 130 million American teenagers dancing to music. Uh, and we presume that uh, the user data they provide, uh, or they, they could, provide to ByteDance uh, will be used, you know, again, for nefarious purposes uh, to uh, manipulate uh, or undermine, you know, our society. Mm -hmm. We have no evidence of that, but we presume that, you know, this evil communist system will do that. So I'm pretty critical of basically going to uh, economic or tech war with a nation on the basis of untested presumptions uh, because of this uh, potential dual use. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, I'm sympathetic to the view that China has not been transparent 
uh, in laying out the boundaries of this dual use and providing assurances that we need to maintain that flow of technology. So it, it cuts both ways, but um, you know, I've, I've got a chapter in my new book, it's called uh, Huawei as a Trojan Horse, where I just argue that we've got you know, a compelling case based on no, no evidence. Hmm. Uh, interesting you mentioned um, uh, Tim Cook was one of the few um, executives who attended this uh, meeting about recently. Um, so I've seen reports that uh, Apple are, are shifting or plan to shift a lot of their production from China to India. Not a um, lot. A not a lot. They're well, starting. I mean, it's, yeah. they've, they've made... They, I, I think what I've seen is something like maybe 5% of iPhones are now right. being moved out of China. But is that are they doing that purely, you know, because it makes sense economically to set up in a you know a big growing economy, or is it because they're worried about this sort of tech war that you that you talk about? I think it's a little of both, but I think they're obviously concerned um, about you know uh, an offshoring solution to their uh, tech production challenges that up until this move has been 100% based on China. And, and you know, there's an important uh, message to other uh, Western multinationals, and that is you need to think about um, hedging some of your uh, Chinese production to, to other areas. And, you know, um, Tim Cook did not say that. Apple will never say that, uh, but it's, it seems reasonable to conclude that that is a consideration um, uh, as well. Uh, you know, he's also, I think, flying to India later this month, if not early next month, to celebrate um, uh, the opening of their first retail store in, I'm not sure where, I guess Mumbai. Um, and so, you know, Apple will make a, a retail push uh, in India as well that could also justify some local production in, in that market as well. Mm -hmm. um, just briefly going back to um, TikTok for a second, uh, would you fully agree that, would you fully agree with this statement that a uh, potential ban on TikTok if Congress passes a, a law that allows the Secretary of Commerce, for example, or the President to ban TikTok, um, would you say that is definitely an overreaction um, by, the, uh, by, by the U.S. government um, fueled by this quote-unquote red scare? I'd say it's pretty close to it. Um, the... The TikTok hearing, which took place uh, when I was in Beijing, mm -hmm. uh, went viral when I was in Beijing. I mean, there's very few uh, sort of snippets of the U.S. Congress at work that you know can can be seen by um, uh, you know Chinese um, because of their censorship and filtering. But this was wide open. <laughs> And uh, the Chinese were furious, and 
you know, many Westerners, including myself, were also terribly upset at the the, the conduct of the um, the hearing and and the aggression that was directed at the Singaporean CEO by an ex extremely hostile Congress. That's not an isolated instance in response to your question about red baiting. On February 28th, the first hearing of the new House Select Committee on uh, competition with the Chinese Communist Party was convened uh, at primetime viewing time in the U.S. And there were four witnesses who um, uh, laid out the most outrageous militaristic view of China uh, that one could imagine, complete with video film clips of Xi Jinping directing uh, a marching uh, People's Liberation Army, uh, presumed as a, uh, a direct threat to American national security. When one speaks up in the United States uh, in favor of re-engagement, uh, re-engagement doesn't mean appeasement, re-engagement doesn't mean uh, surrender, it simply means reopening discussions with Chinese on tough issues. If you speak up for that, uh -huh. You are vilified as being treasonous in America. That is red baiting. That's just as bad as it was in the early 1950s. Can I move on that? Um, so we we talked about tech in in the U.S. in response to China. Um, I just want to quickly touch upon tech within China as well. Um, so much has been said about you know Xi's idea of common prosperity and this overhaul, this recent overhaul of the listing rules, uh, as well as the crackdown on, you know, tech giants like Alibaba or Jack Ma personally, um, and basically the near um, decimation of the private tutoring sector um, seems to a lot of people like valid evidence for that. Um, so the, Like evidence of what? Um, evidence of this uh, very aggressive push for common prosperity. Um, do you think that the room, the room for the private sector and entrepreneurs um, are becoming you know, increasingly and almost irreversibly constrained in China's day? Well, irreversible is too strong. Mm -hmm. But there is, for the reasons you decided, uh, worrisome signs on uh, China's willingness to provide the type of support that had long been evident uh, in its the, the, the key and most dynamic uh, pieces of its uh, internet platform uh, economy. And they're, to some extent, two separate strands of, of, um, of sort of a, a shifting uh, environment that, that I would underscore. You seem to put them together in the form of common prosperity. I, I can understand that. Uh, but um, the regulatory crackdown of two years ago was you know, sparked 
by uh, some unfortunate comments that Jack Ma made, you know, by now well known in a uh, you know high profile uh, financial services conference, right on the brink of the, the now canceled IPO of uh, Ant Financial. Yeah. Not the, in retrospect, the the wisest thing to do. Uh, and that led to pervasive uh, restrictions, uh, initially more on uh, the demand for the services that those companies provide, like uh, live streaming video, music, mm. um, you know, online entertainment spread over into you know, uh, fan culture and uh, the, the private tutoring point that you made and actually occurred a little earlier. Um, and <clears throat> then, um, you know, the so-called rectification campaign uh, against the companies that provided those services. Uh, at the same time, uh, Xi Jinping started, you know, talking the talk of common prosperity. And so in, in my book, I do put them together uh, because I argue that the restriction on uh, the companies and the demand underpinnings of those internet platform companies mm -hmm. together with a separate emphasis on uh, uh, wealth inequality that certainly is uh, exacerbated by uh, the, um, the fortunes that have been made by entrepreneurs in, in that same sector. Uh, collectively, those impacts uh, have led to a stifling of animal spirits that drive entrepreneurial activity uh, in any society, but have been very powerful in China uh, for the last 15 years. And without animal spirits, uh, the startup culture, the innovation that comes from that, and presumably the indigenous innovation that then follows uh, be becomes uh, a much riskier uh, endeavor. China, uh, the Chinese leadership has announced that, you know, that that's over. Um, that the rectification program has ended. Um, and, um, you know, n not by coincidence, um, uh, Jack Ma happened to just show up in yeah. Hangzhou yeah. when we were in, in, in Beijing, and then they immediately announced, you know, this breakup of uh, Alibaba into six separate pieces to drive the point home that, you know, hey, look, you know, that's over. Yeah. What's not over is the restrictions on the demand side of the services that are provided by these industries, uh, as well as the, uh, you know, the, the clear message that uh, wealth creation is 
uh, going to be scrutinized very, very carefully uh, in the years ahead by entrepreneurs. So, you know, I, I think the environment is still very challenging for sort of the private sector animal spirits that, that are important for, for any system, but especially have been so for China for a long time. Um, I, I wanted to ask, since, since you're here in, in London, um, what is the role... Speaking the, of animal spirits. <laughs> what what is, is the role, if, if there is any role, for, for the UK, all the things we've been discussing? I mean, I can recall about a decade ago, there was what the UK hailed as a, a new sort of golden era in relations with, with China. You know, President Xi was offered a, a state visit and there were all sorts of discussions about new economic agreements. Nowadays, we broadly just shadow whatever the US is doing. So, you know, we have stripped out Huawei from most of the public infrastructure, you know, TikTok is banned on government-owned devices and so on. So, you know, do you just expect more of the same or...? I, uh, I suspect, and I, but I, I can't say I'm really an expert on UK-China uh, policy, but everything that I've seen uh, suggests pretty much, as you just said, that the uh, the UK is stands side by side with the US on um, you know its conflict with China. Uh, uh, you know the the point that Macron made, I think, um, is an interesting one, and that is that while Europe is very sympathetic to a number of the issues that the U.S. has raised with respect to China, uh, there is a growing difference on Taiwan policy. And I don't know, I, I would ask you if, if, if that's been expressed uh, in uh, the U.K. I think that's a, an area where um, uh, the West is clearly at risk of being fragmented and Macron is um, you know, on the leading edge of providing evidence for that. But has there been any discussion about Taiwan in, in the UK? Not, I mean, not, not to a great extent, I would think. I mean, I don't know if you detect anything, but... I think what would be interesting to observe is if there is a split between the UK, because the UK's um, foreign policy tends to lean closer to the US, the split between that position and Europe's position, if Macron is to really kind of um, lead that um, so-called strategic autonomy and pivot away from the US. Yeah, I can't, I, can't, yeah. I can't see the, the UK peeling away from the US and ally with, with Europe over, over that. Over yeah. that I think it would be another fault line between the UK and Europe's approach towards global issues. That's, that's just me. Um, my next question is actually um, about China signing these deals with countries like Russia or Saudi Arabia, Brazil, um, to trade and transact in local currencies or renminbi um, instead of the dollar. Uh, and so some have attributed this to the country seeing this quote-unquote weaponization of the dollar used in sanctions against Russia and fearing that that would happen to them as well. And these group of countries are often countries like Saudi Arabia, which are sometimes considered allies, but not democratic. Uh, do you see a trend of de-dollarization, um, or do you think those concerns are, are overblown? 
Well, I think the concerns are overblown in the sense that they uh, portend an imminent demise of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. I think you know, we are seeing a diversification away from dollar-based assets and official foreign exchange reserves, but the dollar still has a dominant, albeit smaller share than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I think this will trend will continue, but the, the dollar is still uh, the, the single most important by you know factor of over t twice as important as the euro in uh, the composition of foreign exchange holdings. Having said all that, I think you know the the weaponization of. Uh, foreign holdings of dollar-based reserves that was, you know, a um, sort of on the first round of sanctions that the U.S. imposed on, on Russia is certainly not lost on the Chinese. Mm. Uh, and, you know, on, you know, other nations who may be conducting foreign policy that's at odds with Washington. You know, we've pretty much uh, opened up a can of worms here. Uh, and, uh, you know, just as uh, Western multinationals may be hedging uh, offshore production exposure away from China, uh, sort of uh, China and its ally, allies may be doing, making a comparable move in, in hedging currency exposure away from uh, the the dollar. Hmm. Um, if uh, if we just talk about China's um, domestic economic problems real quick, um, one of the most um, commonly said warnings that economists such as Martin Wolf from FT have voiced is that a China has a household debt problem that's spiraling out of control. Two, it has a consumption problem. Um, because household savings are unhealthily high. Um, so this reminds people of what Japan went through in the late 1980s. Do you think that these concerns are legitimate and do you see China following Japan's footsteps there? Well, Martin's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Um, with a, and with all due respect to Martin, I've been warning about this for a lot. I t taught a course at Yale for a dozen years called The Lessons of Japan and I warned and have written about that and have given lectures about those risks in China. Uh, they're very much aware of that. Mm. Um, Japan's problem though was not excessive household debt, it was excessive corporate debt. Oh, yeah, okay. So it's really a, a, a different breed uh, and the similarities with China are even more striking when you compare uh, the the debt of corporate zombies of Japan in the '90s with the debt intensity of China's state-owned enterprises since you know over the past uh, dozen years or so, and so that that is worrisome. Um, but you know, I I spoke about this at the um, uh, China Development Forum uh, the first day I was there and I 
you know, there was an academic summit that took place a day before the the economic summit um, that began on Saturday of, of that weekend. And, you know, there it was a relatively small meeting. There may be uh, 40 uh, participants and then, you know, triple that number sitting on the sidelines. Um, and I, I was one of the the last speakers to uh, contribute. And, and, you know, I'd had this speech prepared and I listened to what these guys were saying. And so I, I, I wrote a new speech uh, at, at my desk. And I, I, you know, the title of what I ended up saying is, you know, is China the next uh, Japan? And I focused on two things. One, the most obvious one, which is the aging of the working age population, which is very Japanese-like. Um, but then I, I really bore down on the, uh, bored into the, the productivity challenge mm -hmm. and pointed out that total factor productivity in China has been declining uh, since 2011. And when your working age population is falling, the only way you can maintain solid growth is to accelerate the growth rate of productivity. And China's not accelerating, it's not even holding it steady. The, the TFP is actually contracting at about a one and a half percent annual rate uh, since um, uh, 2011. And so I, I warned of that Japanese-like syndrome. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that got a fair amount of attention in, in the Chinese. Well, I know it did, because I was at the, the end of the three or four days of meetings, I was brought back and summoned to the, the, the head of the, the DRC, the Development Research Council, um, think tank um, that, that is the official think tank for the state council to go through that in greater detail. So that's a big issue. Mm -hmm. Simon, do you have any uh, No, that, that was all I had, yeah. yeah. Um, since you raised I, uh, the problem of productivity, I was just thinking about because the UK has a productivity problem. Um, so, uh, so do we. It's not yeah, really we, we all do, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering if, if you have any thoughts about how to improve that or, or increase productivity, because that's a persistent problem. Yeah, look, the economics profession is barren of any brilliance in understanding uh, productivity. We, we've been grappling with this really for 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I've been involved in many different aspects of that. Um, you know, in the the 90s, we had the, you know, the so-called solo paradox of we saw computers everywhere except in the productivity mm -hmm. statistics, and then the productivity started to show up, and now it's disappeared again. We like to think that innovation uh, is a key aspect of, uh, you know, the productivity solution uh, for
for any society. So investment in new technologies, emphasis in human capital, um, especially in the so-called STEM-based uh, areas of uh, higher education, science, technology, engineering and math, um, R&D spending, uh, all of that is something we view as important, but um, you know, when <clears throat> push comes to shove, we, we don't quite understand how it all filters together. But this gets back to my earlier point. Uh, for a large developing economy that has turned the screws on animal spirits, the impetus uh, for the startup culture and the productivity and the innovation uh, is under pressure. And you add to that the earlier point we made on uh, U.S. sanctions on advanced um, semiconductors, which is aimed directly at uh, Chinese initiatives in artificial intelligence and quantum computing, which require you know, increasingly more rapid processing speeds to uh, manipulate these gigantic databases, uh, you know, there are big question marks mm -hmm. out there for uh, Chinese TFP. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, with a aging population, these are yeah. questions that are, are even more urgent. Mm -hmm. um, um, so my last question here, which is actually just a very quick round of rapid fire questions, um, is, and you feel like we just provide, you know, very short answers for these things. Um, a, do you think uh, Hong Kong remains a global financial center? For the foreseeable future, yes, I do. Uh, do you think a hot war is going to happen in Taiwan in the near future? I sure hope not, but uh, the more the U.S. presses its foot on China's throat, the greater the risk of that possibility. Okay. Um, and do you still think the 21st century is the China century? And do you think Western capital, Western companies have a role to play in that, still have a role to play in that? Uh, that's up to China. Yeah. Uh, if China is comfortable in allowing Western companies to access its markets, they're, they're more than willing to step up and sell things to China. And is it still the China century then? 21st century? Or has that, is that no I think, longer the case? I think, you know, I, I still am optimistic yeah. that, um, uh, you know, the rise of China will continue. Um, it's probably simplistic to uh, label the century as any one nation's uh, century, uh, but, you know, China will continue to grow. Right now, it's going through a, a tough period, and this is an aberration, mm -hmm. or I think this is an aberration, but the jury's out. Okay. Okay. Um, sounds good. So that's my last question. Um, that's it? That's it. For, yeah, for yeah me, thanks that's very it. much. No, no. But thanks a lot, though. That was very informative, very insightful. Yeah. Um, You're smart guys, Jim. <laughs> thanks, thanks. <laughs> um, do you have anything you 